I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That. This is my final episode of season two, 10 Things I've Learned in 10 Years as a Therapist, part two. I'm about to take a much needed season break so that I can work on some big projects that you will definitely be hearing about when I return in April for season three. And I already have some amazing interviews on some very juicy topics coming up in the pipeline for you. So make sure that you are following the show wherever you listen to podcasts so that you won't miss the new episodes when we are back in the spring. And now, the second half of the 10 things I've learned in 10 years as a therapist. Number six, if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not doing a good job. It is a cliche beyond cliches that we have to make mistakes in order to learn. But as a former gifted kid who made my bread and butter off of being good at things the first time for most of my formative years, I hate this and have resisted it more than I can say. My standards for myself tend towards the impossibly exacting, and every mistake I identify in my work rings a pang of disappointment deep within me, rankling me like a pebble in my shoe or like a chord played on an instrument where one string is just this side of out of tune. My relationship with my mistakes has historically been begrudging at best. And anything I've said up until probably today or so about the value and importance of making mistakes has been lip service, something I wanted to believe and knew I was supposed to believe, but really didn't. It doesn't help that we therapists have co-created and work inside of a professional culture that is deeply perfectionistic and absolutely permeated by the fear of making one false move and doing irreparable harm. As someone who indulges in regular deep dives into the comment sections of therapist social media accounts, strictly for research purposes, of course, I see therapist after therapist expressing some variation of the idea that we have to choose every word said to a client with exquisite impeccability, lest some ill-timed or misplaced comment ruin them. No wonder so many clients find their therapists stilted and distant when we are being told by our professional peers to approach our clients with that level of vigilance. Not exactly a professional atmosphere in which one might reasonably expect to greatly increase one's tolerance for making mistakes, and yet I have. I think that my acceptance, or dare I say it, appreciation even, for my mistakes as a therapist began about four or five years ago when I started regularly exchanging written commentary with many of my clients as part of the trauma processing modality I do. And then again, about a year ago when I started regularly recording audio of my sessions. The thing about having a record of the therapy you have conducted, and I don't mean progress notes, which we all know are closer to something like fan fiction of therapy than an actual record of it, but having an actual record of the therapy you actually did is that you will be confronted by your mistakes. You will see the trailheads you missed, the places where the client was three steps ahead of you. You will see the perfect intervention that you didn't make. You will hear yourself put your foot in your mouth. You will hear the times where you thought you said something incredibly impressive and the client was thoroughly unimpressed. 
And if you are like me and you entered into this endeavor with an allergy to being confronted by your own plentiful imperfections, well, you had better harden up pretty damn quick. And I guess I have. But this wasn't just about having accepted the inevitability of myself as an imperfectly acting being. What I said was, if I'm not making mistakes, I'm not doing a good job. And the reason for that is because if I'm not making a goodly number of identifiable active mistakes, what I'm actually doing is making one bigger, more serious, more overarching mistake. And that mistake is being too passive. Humans in general seem to be wired to believe that doing something, an act of commission, and having it turn out poorly is worse than not doing something, an act of omission, and having it turn out poorly. And this problem of choosing omission over commission is the Achilles heel of therapists. It has been my Achilles heel at times, less and less so as I go along. When I am making mistakes, it means I am really involved in the therapy and with my client. I'm trying things. I'm in there and moving. Things are dynamic and happening in the relational space. When I am making mistakes, it means I am taking enough risk. The presence of my mistakes is a harbinger of the aliveness of the therapy I am doing. Number seven. The most important therapeutic virtue is courage. Maya Angelou says, courage is the most important of all the virtues, because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. I remember reading this quote for the first time years and years, probably decades ago, one of those moments where I immediately recognized it as true and also immediately felt some measure of disappointment in myself because I think that by nature, I am not very brave. And yet I have chosen or have been chosen for, however you flip that coin, this job where my ability to show up with courage really matters. It takes courage to risk making mistakes and to risk making mistakes in front of someone I care about deeply and to possibly have to own those mistakes in front of and with them. It takes courage to work on a new or shaky skill and know I won't be anything like perfect at it as I do that work. It takes courage to allow my clients to see me and allow them to see me seeing them. It takes courage to confront a client about something they don't want to hear. It takes courage to trust the process of therapy while sitting week after week with a client who really doesn't yet. It takes courage to withstand the power of a client's intense negative projections. It takes courage both to accept and consider and incorporate a client's feedback and or to decide that particular feedback really isn't accurate and discard it. It takes courage to walk around inside the minds of other people and try to change things in there without doing harm, and so forth. My courage is the gatekeeper of all my other clinical skills. And as good as I may be in all those other areas, I am only as good a therapist as my courage allows me to be. I don't think we talk enough about how much bravery you have to cultivate to do this work well. We are not, by and large, running into burning buildings or diving into an icy cold river to rescue drowning puppies. Nothing we do is going to get us on the news. No one is going to pin a medal on us. 
Mostly we sit and mostly we talk. And yet by numbers, probably most of my greatest acts of courage have taken place inside my office. That should say something about the importance of courage as a clinical skill, and I think it does. Number eight, I am responsible for everything that happens in the therapeutic space. So this is one where I think I am going to have to thread the needle pretty carefully. When I say I am responsible for everything that happens in the therapeutic space, I do not mean that I am the direct cause of everything that happens in the therapeutic space. We are not omnipotent. Clients come in with their own shit, their own personalities, their own relational patterns, their own behavioral tendencies. That's the whole point is for them to come in with that stuff and they do things that we are not the cause of. In 10 years, I have had clients throw things in my office. I have had clients say incredibly mean things to me. They have manipulated me. They have stonewalled me to try and force me to prove myself to them. They have punished me relationally in creative and unpleasant ways. I am not the cause of those behaviors. I am not the first person those clients have done those things to, and I won't be the last. So that's not what I mean by responsible. I also don't mean that clients don't have responsibilities in the therapeutic space. They do. I am not one of those therapists who thinks that the only responsibility a client has in therapy is to show up to session and pay the bill. I have expectations of my clients around the way they engage in the work, some of which are quite specific. So that is also not what I mean by I am responsible for everything. Here's what I mean, and I'm about to make a reference that I never would have expected to make on a podcast about therapy. Years ago, my ex-husband read the book Extreme Ownership by the former Navy SEAL Jocko Willink, and he got into that guy's podcast. And so I absorbed a lot of the ideas by osmosis around the house. And the extreme ownership idea of leadership is what I think I'm actually getting at here. The therapeutic dyad is a team. You can find a hint at that in the term therapeutic alliance. We are a team. We have a mission. And I, the therapist, am the team's leader. Some of you don't like that because you think it doesn't sound collaborative. But for one, good leadership is collaborative. And two, if you aren't the team's leader, your clients probably shouldn't be paying you, buddy. Me being responsible for everything that happens in the therapeutic space means that I am responsible for helping my clients rise to the occasion of fulfilling their responsibilities in the therapeutic space, which again, I do believe that they have. If they struggle with meeting my expectations for how to engage in therapy with me as their therapist, it's my job to scaffold them in that struggle. If I have a client who has difficulty effectively utilizing therapy, It's my responsibility to help them learn how to use it. If I have a client who is manipulating me, it's my job to clock it and intervene with it. It's my job to believe in our mission and to facilitate my client's belief in it too. It's my job to set my own standard for what a good session is and to take whatever my client gives me that day and perform well enough to make it a good session by my standard. And if I have a client that I consistently cannot do those things with, they shouldn't be there. 
Part of the reality that I am responsible for everything that happens in the therapeutic space is that I am responsible for maintaining its perimeters. I sometimes find that therapists swing between these two polarities of taking too much responsibility and not enough. We'll either end up as doormats because we see ourselves as the cause of anything that goes unpleasantly in the therapeutic space and frantically try to people please our way out of it. Or we let ourselves off the hook with regards to our failures to manage challenging situations by ascribing the failure to the client's qualities or lack of readiness. Extreme ownership is the best model I've found to find my way out of those polarities in an empowered way. So thank you, Jocko Willink, and thank you to my ex-husband. I won't say you never did anything for me. Number nine, it is very, very hard to be a person. I've often joked with friends over the years that I have experienced the unfortunate reality that it is possible to be both a misanthrope and an extrovert. Add therapist into the mix, and wow, those are really three labels you never expected to hear uttered in reference to the same person. It is not that I didn't know, of course, before I became a therapist, that it is hard to be a person. No one who did not come pre-tuned to some particular frequency of human suffering would be attracted to this job. And what's more, I've always found personhood itself to be an inherently irritating and painful endeavor, and humanity in aggregate to be a considerable disappointment in a multitude of ways. However, there is something about the intimacy with it, isn't there? With all the various specific ways that being a person can be and is hard, no matter what version of it you've ended up with, sitting with story after story, suffering after suffering, struggle after struggle, and yes, there are joys and victories too, but we're not talking about those right now. There is something about sitting with all these particular human struggles that has imbued me with this felt sense of the universality of the human struggle in general not because they're all the same. They're not, though many of them have much in common. And not even because they're all in some way of the same magnitude. They're not. Life and the world are far too complicated to be reducible to that amount of sameness. Rather, it is a paradox, yep, one of those again, where the variability of these human struggles that I am as a therapist in intimate relationship with shows me something essential about the tragedy of our humanness. As that has happened, something about my misanthropy has softened around the edges. People often think that being a trauma therapist, especially in the way that I work where I have a high amount of exposure to my clients' stories of betrayal, cruelty, and abuse of all kinds, must harden me, make me more bitter about the human species. Somehow it's been the other way around. It's seeing humanity through the relationships I have with my clients that has, in fact, taught me to love it more. Number 10. I've become part of a siblinghood. One of the appealing things about this job back when I started out, aside from the fact that I was utterly compelled to do it by intrapsychic and interpersonal forces far beyond my conscious understanding, was the fact that as a therapist, I would be able to work for myself. Given that I have a deep-seated aversion to being told what to do by anyone, no matter how reasonable the request, and the fact that paperwork has always been my kryptonite, 
I make a terrible employee and I've long fancied myself a bit of a lone wolf. The problem there is that as a friend of mine who is currently writing a screenplay about the wolves of Yellowstone and who has been regaling me with a steady stream of wolf tales and facts recently told me, there really are no lone wolves, not for long. Even the quirkiest or the most difficult or the ones who wander off on the longest and strangest journeys have a place in the pack with the other wolves. And we do need each other. I know it annoys some people when I compare being a therapist to being part of something like a monastic order, but I do think that's the most apt comparison outside our field, minus the community support, collective dwellings, and uniforms, although I have to admit to loving a good therapist cardigan. I don't want to get too precious about us. It's not that we're more special than other people, but we do have a particular role in society a role that restructures much of our experience of the rest of the world and of other people. And so there are some things that only we really understand about each other. For an exploration of what those some things are, see the entire back catalog of all my podcast episodes. Though I'm not much of a joiner, see the aforementioned misanthropy, I did turn out to be joining something here. A tradition, a trade, a community, a way of being in the world, a siblinghood, with the attendant love and hate and loyalty and fighting and frustration and camaraderie that I'm told, I'm an only child, characterize familial siblinghood. And it turns out I wouldn't want to do this without that. I appreciate you other therapists out there listening who are a part of that siblinghood of this work and this life with me, even if we've never met. A Therapist Can't Say That will resume with Season 3 in April of 2024. I want to thank my guests this season, Silvana Espinoza-Lau, Dr. Elena Herrera, Onyx Fujii, Asher Panjuris, Dr. Andrea Salenza, and of course my dear friend Dr. Kay Hickson for the inspiring and generative conversation and the invaluable perspectives they shared with us over these past months. I want to thank the team at Yellow House Media, without whom this podcast would have remained nothing more than an idea, and especially my producer, Sean McMullen. Sean, thank you for all you do and just for being an all-around mensch. Last year, in my final episode of my first season, when I was thanking everyone, I forgot to mention my clients, which is embarrassing, frankly, because none of this content that I have been creating here over the past two years would exist without them. My clients are the people who witness me making my greatest effort, which is a kind of intimacy that I've never really heard anyone talk about, and that I find oddly vulnerable in a way that is probably much more apparent to me than it is to them, but vulnerable nonetheless. They witness most of my greatest successes and some of my most significant failures. They are mostly very generous with the patience they extend to my humanness with their trust in my attempts to repair my mistakes, and with their courage in allowing me to accompany them into some of the innermost rooms of themselves, which is something I find holy enough that I actually find it hard to talk about. My clients are my greatest teachers, and I learn from them every day about how to be a better therapist and how to help other therapists be better therapists. And not just how to be a better therapist, but as we contend with each other, and I watch them rise to the occasion to contend with their own shit. 
They teach me things about the kind of person I would like to be. So if you are one of my clients and you are listening, and I know some of you are, for all those things and for being my life's work and for keeping the lights on over at my place, thank you. And finally, to you, my listeners, thank you so much for being here with me on A Therapist Can't Say That. I've heard it said that part of the reason that creating art or creating content, as we are calling it these days, feels simultaneously grandiose and vulnerable is that it requires that we decide that something about our way of seeing the world is important before we know if anyone else agrees with that yet. And hearing from many of you this year that you do means a great deal to me. I am excited to have connected with some of you one-on-one over the past few months, and I'm looking forward to continuing to build more of those connections with you as we go along here. Please don't forget to rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to share the show with a therapist friend who you know really wants to join us in talking about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. I love hearing your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course, your A Therapist Can't Say That moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to Reva at IntoTheWoodsPortland.com. Talk to you in the spring. Thank you.